Our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. This is something that um, Suzuki Roshi said. And as we begin to move out of this environment of simplicity into an environment that is a lot more complex, can we continue to have this sense of openness, of readiness, of stability? Can we come to our everyday life with a sense of having a beginner's mind, not assuming, not presuming, uh, not uh, being caught or lost in concepts and perceptions about how things have been. So, of course, they've been frozen for the week we've been here, and then when we move back into it, of course, they will still be the same. Um, (laughs) To uh, see if it's possible to to allow for fluid, fluidity as we um, move out into our daily life existence. You know, although this is a challenging environment at times because we're really just with ourselves in a very, very bare way, at the same time, of course, it's a very simple environment. And... Um, you know, our, our daily lives are not quite as simple, whatever kind of life one has. I know that it's not quite as simple as being here. Um, our practice is to find an oasis in the midst of the complexity. You know, I began on the night that we started, uh, Saturday night, Saturday night? Saturday night, yeah, I can't remember. I began on the night we started on Saturday night speaking about refuge with, um, with wise effort and earnestness. Find for yourself an island which no flood can overwhelm. And that's exactly what we're continuing to do. That was the beginning of the retreat, but it's also totally applicable at the end of a retreat because we're really c- continuing to cultivate and nourish that oasis, that island, that inner island, which no flood can overwhelm. And then, of course, the question is how to do that, you know, how to continue to cultivate this inner refuge, this inner oasis. And the answer is by continuing to practice in the here and now, to practice the four foundations of mindfulness in the Buddhist time, um, there's a particular sutra about how people in the town um, would get together around a, a well. And um, one person would say to another, so which foundation of mindfulness are you practicing today, sir? And the person would say, I'm practicing mindfulness of the body. What foundation of mindfulness are you practicing, madam? I'm practicing mindfulness of unpleasant feeling, and and so on and so on. So whether we can do this with friends, which is a very lovely way to do this, to ask one another, to support one another, which helps a lot in our practice. I don't know, we're in our bathtub or something like that. We don't have wells. But (laughs) some some way of continuing to nourish the um, foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha said, Be your own island, be your own refuge. Do not take any other refuge. Let the Dharma be your island. Let the Dharma, let the truth, be your refuge. Do not take any other refuge. And how does one take oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge, without any other refuge? How is the Dharma one's island in refuge and nothing else? 
one dwells practicing contemplation on the body, feelings, mind, and the Dharma. In this way, one will be one's own island and refuge without any other. In this way, one will have the Dharma as one's island and refuge and nothing else. Yeah, so it's the instructions are to find a, a, a refuge, find an oasis, and then this is the how. The how is to actually, from moment to moment, rest within the present moment with things as they are, with this mind-body experience. There's three different things I want to address a little bit having to do with going home. One is the sitting practice itself, um, just little hints and ways to continue a sitting practice. Um, Another being uh, about daily life practice, bringing mindfulness into our daily life, and the other having to do just a little bit with transitioning out of this environment into a, a daily life environment. So the first having to do with the sitting, sitting really is the basis for a sane life. It really is. You know, I mean, we can, we can hear a lot about practice in daily life, and of course, moment to moment, seeing if we can fall into the present moment in practice is absolutely essential. And we can't just sit and think that life is going to be so great. On the other hand, I do think it's deluded to think that we can do this without sitting. I do. However, how much sitting is a very personal matter. It's important when one leaves an environment such as this where we've all been sitting hour after hour after hour, and so then we think, oh, when we go home, it should be easy. You know, how come I can't sit three hours a day? It's less than eight. You know, or (laughs) how come I'm even having a hard time finding a half an hour a day, that kind of thing. That's, That's just the way things are. It's not to fall into a, you know, a failure or um, taking it in a, any kind of a personal way. It's really just how things are. It's harder in one's daily life to make it a priority and to find the time to practice. I do, though, feel that it's absolutely essential to, <clears throat> to make it a priority and to find that time. It's really, really important to have modest aspirations, however. You know, not to sit down with agendas. The mind should be a certain way. If one sits down, this is enough. Well, just sitting down is enough. And then allowing the practice to pull you in. Not thinking that you have to do it all. You know, you're doing a lot of your work simply by sitting down. And then not worrying about yourself seeing if it's possible to not worry about how you're doing and how the mind isn't the way one wants it to be. Very, very rarely is the mind the way we want it to be. So why would it be? why, why, Why should it be? If we sit down in that way with that openness and with that sense of surrender, it just helps so much for us to continue to support ourselves in this to not undermine ourselves, to continue to go in the direction that we want to go in. Sitting really is a way to get behind one's aspirations. As I said the other night, to put one's body behind one's dreams and aspirations in life. To sit in whatever way one wants, just I think it is helpful unless one has a back problem, I think it is helpful to sit up straight and to, even if you're in a chair, keep the, keep the spine straight. I shouldn't say even if you're in a chair, it's fine if you're in a chair. You know, in a chair, keep the spine straight. And then to, um, oftentimes it, it works best to find the same time each day to sit. Now, sometimes this is just doesn't fit one's personality and it's a huge problem or just because of the way one's life is, it doesn't work out. And so it's not a cut-and-dried rule or anything like that. 
But for a lot of people, to have the same time to sit every day does help quite a bit, because at least you know when you haven't. You know? And at least you're not going through the whole day thinking, well, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit. You know, I haven't sat. (laughs) (laughs) At least there's a a, a moment where you can really um, deal with that resistance to the sitting and be with it and then maybe escort yourself to the cushion nonetheless. In terms of the amount of time, um, you know, to sit at all is a good thing. Now remember that, to sit at all is a good thing. To sit three minutes a day is a very, very, very good thing. Sounds absurd right now. We all think we're going to be able to leave and sit hour after hour. So just remember this, you know, that any amount of time is a really good thing to do in one's life. It all nurtures, it's all going in the right direction. And then you'll find out for yourself how much is necessary We sort of understand this for ourselves. We can see the quality of our day being impacted by the sitting. And that really encourages us to do it. If we begin to see that the quality of our day actually um, has something to do with the sitting, with our sanity throughout the day, um, it might really encourage us to sit when we need to. So it's a process of self-education, in other words. Don't worry about resistance. Everybody has resistance. And if you sit anyway, that's what matters. So not to make it into some psychological dilemma, why do I have resistance? The why is absolutely of no importance. I mean, everybody's got a why, and... It really doesn't much matter. One has to get to the cushion regardless of the specific why. The next thing is um, just a little bit about daily life practice. And um, one very helpful way to continue the practice in daily life is to take up one specific mindfulness activity throughout the day. In other words, choose one thing that's very simple, like putting on your seatbelt, or um, taking a shower, or um, maybe brushing your teeth, something like that, that you have to do anyway, so you're not making more work for yourself. And to see if that one activity can be your practice, if you can bring the same attention to it as one is trying to bring to the sitting. To really make it into a specific, discrete time from beginning to end in which you're going to practice. Another way, of course, to do this is to take one hour in the day. And during that hour, while one is moving around, whether at work or at home, to be very quite clear that this is going to be my hour of practice in daily life. You know? Because, of course, one wants to do one's best all day long and be as mindful as possible. But it helps a lot if you take a discrete hour and try to practice with great enthusiasm in the midst of that. Not with ideas about results, really just with the earnestness to to practice. When we find ourselves in dilemmas in our daily life, when we're in a situation where somebody's really angry at us, when we're in a situation when we're really angry at somebody else, when we're in a situation where we're at work and we don't know what to do and things are very confusing, when we're having difficulty with our family life or with our friendships, when we find ourselves at a crossroads in life, and we don't exactly know which way to go, how to move with it. To be with that, as I was speaking about the other night, this, this Confucius saying, muddy water, let stand, becomes clear. Now, the patience to hold it all until one sees something differently 
is really, really, really helpful, really encouraging that sense of patience. Because so often we think we have to act when we don't. We feel inner pressure. We feel an inner kind of movement where we have to do something. And it's not, you know, of course we do have to move at times. Certainly we have to move. But a lot of times we have more room than we, than we thought we did. You know? And oftentimes when there's that, there's that feeling of pressure or being compelled to move is when we need to stop, is when we need to offer ourselves a lot more space so that wisdom really can arise. When the mind goes down, wisdom comes up. So letting the mind go down, you know, allowing for more space and stability, being aware of that compulsion, being aware of that pressure, being willing to sit with pressure instead of moving out of it, you know, instead of moving from that energy of pressure, which is pretty hit or miss in terms of whether it works or not. Yeah? I mean, sometimes the result is great, and um, oftentimes it's not, because it, there was no wisdom in it. It really was a movement from that, that source being that of pressure, and doesn't, the results aren't so great. But another way to work with any dilemma in daily life that we find ourselves caught in is to really use the path itself. As you remember, the path includes, this is the path of happiness, the path of freedom. The path includes three components, and all of them are really, really useful to reflect upon when we find ourselves in a, in a difficulty. Uh, sila, or ethics, is one. Samadhi, or calm, concentration, is another. And panya, or wisdom, is the third. And it's very, very interesting to take these up and to reflect upon them when we find ourselves in a crunch because sometimes sila is the thing. You know, we're in a particular situation. We don't know what to do. If we review the five precepts, sometimes it's that simple. You know, the five precepts, as you remember, are avoiding harming or destroying life, not taking that which isn't offered to us, so not stealing, using our sexual energy um, with kindness, non-harming with our sexual energy, being very aware of the naturalness of sexual energy, and being very aware of how we move with it, the the kind of tenderness that we need to... to, um, kind of apply with the sexual energy. Taking on the precept of uh, wise speech. I mean, I I always say that even if all the other precepts are fine, wise speech is where we're going to get, have something to work with. Uh, Wise speech being saying that which is honest and useful, kind, uh, noticing when we're speaking harshly and hurting others in that way. Um, being aware of divisive speech, um, being aware of of, um, not speaking accurately or simply, so speaking that which isn't true. And the fifth one being not clouding the mind through um, the excess use of intoxicants or drugs. So really taking that one on in quite a sensitive way as well because it goes in opposition to mindfulness You know, any level of addiction or dependence is really not going to support our seeing the independence within ourselves. We're going to really be relying on a false refuge. So it's so important to bring our attention to. But looking at the five precepts, you know, sometimes it, it gives us a bit of a map. We find ourselves really caught by something, really struggling. How do I work within this situation with grace and dignity. And looking at the five precepts, sometimes it's really simple. You know, hard. You know, hard because we're giving up something that we're attached to. Um, you know, sometimes there's, there's some degree of letting go that has to happen. 
But then when we do it, it's so refreshing. It's so encouraging. Um, We find that there's so much more space available to us than we had ever imagined when we were caught or attached. So sometimes in daily life situations, taking up sila, taking up ethics, taking up the five precepts and using it as a guide or a map can just be exactly the right thing to do. Because, you know, when we find ourselves in complexity, sometimes it's a lot more simple than we think it is. We just don't want to do it. So to, to, be, to be aware of that. Other times, it's really a matter of a samadhi or concentration or calm, which means we're caught by something. We're really dwelling in something. You know, I'm so terrible, I'm so horrible, da-da-da-da-da, whatever it might be. We're really caught, we're really stuck in something, the same old thing going over and over again and having a real hold over us. Sometimes to apply samadhi would be to really focus on the breathing at that time, you know, to use the breath as a refuge or to use sound as a refuge or to use, you know, just just the feet touching the floor as a refuge. Um, to use the metta practice as a refuge, to really take the mind off of whatever it's obsessing or caught or dwelling within and taking it kind of off the record, you know, and placing it somewhere else. This is not going to be a good image in time. It probably isn't isn't anymore with all the, um, um, what is it, the CDs, yeah. But... You know, taking taking it off the the needle, we can still use it now. <laughs> Another few years, then it'll be dinosaur. <laughs> so taking the needle off the record and putting it on a more peaceful place. It's not a total resolution of the difficulty by any means, but it does offer us peace. It does offer us a temporary refuge that will allow us to be able to see with more perspective. Sometimes what we need is a break. Sometimes what we need is simply space. It gets so crowded when we're obsessed by something. It gets so so loud in there when we're preoccupied with a particular dilemma, a particular difficulty in our life, that to just take the mind off of it and put it somewhere else to a wholesome um, arena, you know, to the breath, to the metta practice, can allow us the space to inquire into, to be able to see things in a different way. Sometimes when we do this, it's immediately obvious what we need to do or what we need to not do that we've been doing. It becomes immediately obvious to us because we've taken a rest. We need to rest. Just as the body needs to rest, the mind, the heart needs to rest. It deeply needs to rest. It deeply needs to rest. It thirsts for for rest. And so to allow rest to happen is an incredibly important, essential, and nourishing thing to do. The third area we can look at, so there's sometimes with the dilemma looking at um, sila being the answer, you know, looking at the map or the guide of sila, ah, this is what I need to do, just stop talking in the way that I'm talking, or um, stop um, you know, harming in this particular situation or whatever it might be. Other times, um, it's, it's samadhi, allowing the heart to rest, you know, and then Other times, it's panya, it's wisdom, which means inquiring into, investigating, and looking at, for instance, a particular situation that we think is endless, seeing if we can look from the lens of impermanence, you know, that with anything that is occurring, let's say we're in our daily life and we're feeling just incredibly um, sad, you know, a, a, a great loss in our life, and we feel really sad. Now, bringing compassion to that sadness, and as well, holding it as something that has flux in it, that has change built into it, that is going to move, you know, that is going to shift at some point. 
Not from the perspective of it's impermanent, and so if I can just kind of, you know, grip my teeth and hang out with it, it will be over, because that's a way of trying to get rid of it. But instead, the recognition that there is impermanence in everything, in every emotion, as endless as it may appear to be, it really is impermanent. Every situation that we find ourselves in that we think is going to be permanent, going to be the way things are for the rest of our lives, we want to look at from the lens or the perspective of change, things changing, things moving, things much more fluid. Another question, you know, in this realm of panya or wisdom is, am I identified with this, particularly situations at work and with family? There's such a strong tendency to to be identified. This is is who I am. This has to change. Um, You know, the attachment can just be really, really strong. And to look at this area, to see if there's a way in which we're too glommed onto it and so can't see what our options are, what the alternatives are, what the possibilities are. To ask that question, am I overly identified with this particular situation? I'm just remembering a situation um, a long time ago for me where um, there was something in the situation I was in that really, you know, obviously I thought did need to change. (laughs) One always thinks this. And so I was doing everything I could to try to change it. And I was talking about it and I was shaking people in my own way. And I was saying, it's gotta change. You know, it was really a really big hook because it had to do with what I thought was going to include suffering for other people. You can get hooked in a lot of different ways. That happened to be my hook, you know, that this was really going to impact on a lot of people. So it felt self-righteous, you know, that I know the way out of this. And what I realized at a certain point is that I just had to stop talking for a while. I had to get really quiet, even though for me it was really, you know, I kind of moved from not talking to talking. Now I had to move from talking to not talking. That that was keeping up with myself to realize I had talked enough. And shaking people is not going to do a thing. And experimenting with being quiet, experimenting with being in the very same meeting where the very same things were happening, but deciding just to listen, deciding not to say a word. Certainly, of course, deciding not to shake people. But also deciding just to stay quiet and to listen more deeply and to find peace within my own heart so that there could be one less person suffering in the situation (laughs) at least. (laughs) So we have to experiment. We have to to try different things. We have to go against our tendencies. You know, if we always talk, not to talk. If we never talk, try talking. Um, You know, if we always have to move in a certain way, Um, moving in the other direction, Uh, trying something that's different, experimenting, because this is where our habits come in. Now, somebody says something to us, we always say the same thing. Somebody says something that hurts us, we don't say anything, we nourish it for 10 years and we hate that person, you know? And then more and more resentment. Is there another way to be in this life? The practice invites us into another way to be by questioning our habits, by questioning our tendencies. As we leave, it's, um, it's very common for there to be just a lot of different emotions occurring. Um, you know, happiness at leaving, of course. <laughs> I know that's there. Um, and also at times, sometimes feeling of, of loss, of letting go of something that has been a refuge. Um, and just kind of confusing feelings. And um, to let it all be there, it's different right now. We are moving into a different environment. This is true. And the practice is the same. It's no different. The conditions are different, but the practice is the same. So with the different emotions that arise and with the plans that have to be made, 
You know, this is all part of life. We can allow it to be there. It doesn't have to feel like it's flooding us or overwhelming us or too much or now we're not practicing anymore. You know, it's, it's life. It's here. Um, it's fine. And at the same time, can we continue to know that all we have is the here and now? You know? Can we continue to very gently hold this precious moment, this precious life, that we can receive only in the present moment. And so always resettling, always, always resting back into our own experience. Yeah. Because clinging is clinging. You know? I mean, even if it's a refined kind of clinging, it's still clinging, <laughs> a sophisticated kind of clinging. Yeah? And the clinging, some of it is very positive because we, we cling to our practice being a certain way in this environment because we know something. So there's a gratitude there that's based on confidence. Yeah? I mean, that's a really positive thing. And at the same time, if we hold on to anything, whatever it is, there's going to be angst there's going to be discomfort, there's going to be suffering. So, can we keep up with ourselves as we move into this time of moving out of this environment into our daily life? And so I wanted to say just a little bit about transitioning. With the strong emotions, I I remember my very first two-week retreat many, many years ago at this point, um, I got totally hysterical at the end of it. I, I sat with a very good friend of mine, and so at the end of it, we were just outside on the stairs there, falling, you know, falling over ourselves, falling on the stairs with hysteria about nothing. You know? I can't, I, <laughs> nothing, not, not the slightest bit of, of um, reason for it, just, just the, the release of energy and uh, strong emotion. So, um, so, you know, just in terms of, of that being present, just to allow it and see if you can, can gently hold it and be aware of it as it's occurring. But as we move out, what is so important is kind of um, uh, allowing ourselves to learn appropriate action in whatever environment we're in. So many of us, of course, will at some point get into a car um, and begin to drive. So how to apply the practice, how to be appropriate in that situation of driving a car? You know, of course, um, we've been talking about being with the bare experience of things, but uh, driving a car, very, very foolish to, you know, just get caught in form and color. You know, a, 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 red, a red light does mean stop. It's not... <laughs> It's not just color. You know, that's not all it is. A, a form coming towards you is not just form. It's another car about to um, hit you, you know? So um, we need to expand at this point and, um, <laughs> and allow ourselves to apply the practice um, in a, a wider way, a more expansive way. Mm. When we're driving, for example, you know, the practice wouldn't be simply being aware of the sensation of the hand against the wheel. Now, that's good. Now, that's positive. Being aware of the hand against the wheel is a touch point. And so it is something that one would want to do. And at the same time, to allow intelligence to operate, you know, to be aware, um, how can I practice right here and now? And that question, I think, is one of the best how can I practice right here and now? Now, certainly, touching the wheel, you know, being aware of the sensation between the wheel and the hands, and at the same time, allowing um, wisdom to be operating. You know? How can I practice right now? And so it's a wider lens of attentiveness that's necessary. And so many different things. I mean, just that irritation when somebody does something we don't like in another car. How can I practice right now? Opportunity to be aware of the irritation, you know, refrain from the finger, and (laughs) 
send a little bit of loving kindness. You know, that would be a way of practicing. Yeah? That would be a, an actual real life way of practicing. In Boston, admittedly, it's not easy. One person said, you know, you, know, you can't. You can't be enlightened bodhisattva in Boston while driving. But I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I do think that we can practice in any environment we find ourselves in. And this is where the fun comes in. You know, this is where the real kind of excitement and richness comes in. So that whatever situation we find ourselves in, this question, how can I practice with it, trans- transforms it immediately. You know, whatever situation it is, bringing in this interest and this intelligence and this question, how can I practice with it? Not, I should practice it like, with it like this or, you know, kind of very, very tight constraints but really bringing this interest in. This is why in, in, um, sometimes in Zen, there's a, a particular saying, for Zen, um, for, for meditative students, every day is a fortunate day. And the reason that this is said is because how can we bring this kind of question into um, whatever situation we find ourselves in? I mean, generally, we get quite glommed onto, onto things. But if we can bring this interest in this excitement, you know, this sense of workability with whatever it is that's happening, you know, more and more. And of course, on retreats, we work with small situations so that we can bring it into larger situations. And this is one of the graces of being here, of course. And we can continue to work with very small situations in our daily lives more and more when larger situations happen, can we embrace them as well? Can we bring an interest in? Can we bring a richness in? Can we hold it more lightly? The question really is, how can we participate in life? Not hold ourselves separate, not be different, not be other than. How can we participate in life? We must have beginner's mind, free from possessing anything, a mind that knows everything is in flowing change. Nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. Even under the heavy snow, we see snowdrops in some new growth. In the east, I saw rhubarb already. In Japan in the spring, we eat cucumbers. This is the simplicity of practice. You know, I've been here a lot this winter, um, four times actually since, um, since March. And so I've gotten to see the weather just change unbelievably. And this is the first time I really, you know, with that wonderful poem, sitting quietly doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. I tried it in March, and it really, <laughs> with the heavy snow, you know. But it's, it's really, it's so, it's so much the way of things. Yeah, to, to be aware of the weather really allows us to hold things differently within ourselves, to really be aware of the inner weather, and to be aware of the sun that is truly behind the clouds. All right, so um, any questions that you have? And um, both of us will participate in this. Yeah? Could, could, you, could you start from the beginning? I can't hear you. Do you mean that because you're being aware, you're finding that the pain is more intense? Yes. Yes? Okay. Yeah. Sometimes that does happen. Um, you know, it's because when we're not aware, it's, it's kind of happening in the back of our mind. It's still there and we don't like it. it 
Exactly. So we don't have to experience it so much. And in being present, um, we do experience pain more vividly. But if you can stay with it, you will get the chance and relax around it and, you know, be compassionate towards it. You will get the chance to see it change, to see it move, to see that it's not as permanent as it appears to be. You know, if you, if you watch from a present moment perspective, you'll see it's intense, it's more intense, it's even more intense, it's not happening, you know, it's, it's, it's in the middle. You know, in other words, you'll begin to see that kind of change. And if you can stay present with it, if you have a glossy kind of um, mental um, perception over it, this is pain and it's always going to last forever and... You know, I can't stand it. That makes it impossible and unworkable. Whereas if one can um, approach it in a different way, that's, you know, seeing into the nature of pain, which is not easy. And, of course, one needs to take breaks from it and to work within one, one's limits. But um, that's part of, part of what we're doing in practice is learning to see into the nature of pain. Yeah, Gail. Yes, 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 yes. I understand. I don't know what the question is in that. I didn't want to hog. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> I didn't want to hog. <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah, someone, someone after a three-month course was going around saying, you know, all beings do this and all beings do that, and you know, everyone was looking at her in a really strange way. All beings. It's it's an odd way to put things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's so important um, to be the practice, you know, rather than um, than talk about it, you know, and rather than thinking words are going to have that much power or going to affect so much change. Um, I think it's so important to to um, rest within one's own experience and then notice um, separation, inner separation. You know, and attend to that first. You know? Because words, even if they're the most noble or, um, or true, um, there can be this, this gap. It's possible for words to bring about a gap. Right, right, right. I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I get, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I guess I think one has to accept that because um, it is going to be different. The, the, the responses are going to be different as one develops along the path. 
and it's it's not like it's going to help anybody, um, you know, for there to be more agitation or more chaos. So maybe you can hold it as there's an adding to to some calm, to some peace, um, with the response that is there within your own being, rather than it being a separation. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So can one bring attention to that? Can one be aware of that in relationship, not getting absorbed into the environment or absorbed into the other person, but aware of that in the present moment, of that, of that fear? And it's a question. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yes. This building has been used for many different things, uh, is the truth. And this, and this was a, a, a Catholic monastery, correct. It's been a mansion, it turned into a Catholic monastery, and now it's a retreat center. And it, you know, it was bought like 20, exactly 25 years ago, and nobody removed the bowling alley. And it's a good walking space, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were men. <laughs> they were men. Uh, oh, there's another. <laughs> Intimate relationships. Is that what you? T- what was the question? That specifically that or relationships in general or every day? To me, that's uh, some of the fruit of being in relationship is just that fact that you do get a chance to, plenty of opportunity to investigate and open to, you know, deeper layers within us, you know, places we're stuck, places we're clinging. I mean, it's hard to be in intimate relationships without touching those places that are bringing us suffering in one form or another. And, you know, with practice and over time, one change happens, which is, you're not always ungrateful for somebody revealing to you where you're suffering. You know, in other words, when somebody does something to you, like say somebody insults you or says something that hurts your feelings. Um, with pra- after time, with practice, you don't really see that necessarily as a bad thing. I mean, it's painful maybe and it feels difficult, but it also does genuinely give you a chance to kind of look at what you're holding on to and what your reaction might be to that. Um, Because the direction of practice is going towards wisdom and equanimity, and working in relationship is really identical in many ways as working on the cushion, except for the fact that when you're in relationship, it's a lot easier sometimes to forget to use the practice, to forget to be aware, um, because a lot of times we have agendas in relationship which we might not have on the cushion, We've got, uh, we're attached to a lot of different things. Our conditioning is very strong. And so naturally it comes out in intimate relationships and um, intimate relationships can provoke a lot of different things within us. 
wide range, obviously you know all this, but uh, those are all opportunities to look at where we're clinging, where we're suffering. And at the same time, it needs to be balanced in a sense that meditation isn't about being passive in relationship or just, just being aware of what your experience is. It's about wisdom. It's about how to navigate in relationship in a skillful way, you know, in a way that doesn't bring harm to you or somebody else. And that's, that, that's not just a precept. It's a question of really seeing what's appropriate and what isn't uh, in given situations. And, and the more that one practices, the better you get at that. You know, when you end up not going down certain roads, you end up changing your behavior, you end up making different choices because you can sort of see that if you, somebody says something to you and you, you can begin to see your reactions. And a lot of times without awareness, people aren't even aware that they're reacting at all. And when you're not aware that you're not reacting, then you have no choice at all but to react and to get caught and then that, of course, amplifies and extends the suffering. Whereas with mindfulness, you might react just like anybody else might, you know, in terms of getting angry or hurt or upset. But with awareness, you don't have to feed it or identify with it or get caught up in it. So the practice is really the same wherever you are. It just unfolds in different ways and there's different lessons to be learned. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that you can't get away from the world. Um, but we can also um, value simplicity, you know, in our life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting just how hard that is. Um, you can sort of intellectually value simplicity, but to kind of put simplicity into practice. Uh, and it can be put in practice if you have four kids and, you know, lots of different things. It, it does... It, it, um, you know, simplicity is a good thing. And sometimes in this culture, it's really hard to find that balance between being in relationship and, and having a livelihood and helping the world and, and keeping a lifestyle that's reasonable. Um, and, you know, sometimes we go from one extreme to the next. And I, I personally think it's good to find that middle path um, where... You're really clear about what you want and where you want to go and kind of how to get there. And finding that middle path is, is, is really where it's at, I think. You know, just not getting caught up in status and achievement and all that um, is, is really important. Uh, but secondly, um, in terms of having an impact on the world, um, one of the most responsible things you can do in this world is to change yourself and to find peace within yourself. And that requires looking at one's own suffering and kind of cleaning that up a bit, you know, getting to a place where there's more balance in the mind, where we genuinely respond with more wisdom and compassion to whatever situation we're in. Um, then when you take it into the bigger picture, like town hall, um, you know, a lot of changes can come from that place if you're calm and 
more balanced and not identified and not reactive, you really have something to offer that's really significant, not just a particular idea or a, a law or some, some, but you're really offering yourself. And that's, that's really a good thing, to be able to offer yourself coming from a place of clarity and compassion. Uh, you're going to make a lot more change if you can do that. But that takes a lot of work on oneself. Sometimes we're too quick to try to fix the world's problems when we ourselves are suffering a lot and we haven't really worked through much of it. So start with yourself. That's, I think it's really important. Um, yeah. One more? Do you want to? One more. Um. <laughs> I can't choose. Just somebody start asking. Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> uh, I see at IMF there doesn't seem to be any one paramount feature. And I'm wondering in the Vipassana style practice whether it's important to have one. Yeah, I think it, it is a good question um, because, you know, in some other lineages there's one choice of teacher and then there is total, you know, surrender as well as working with that one particular teacher. It has positive and negative components to it. Um, in the Vipassana tradition is, you know, at least in the West, um, and it, if you come to IMS, um, there are a lot of different teachers. And um, uh, it depends on how you use it. You know? Sometimes it can help to hear the Dharma from different perspectives because different people stress different things. Other times it can be really confusing. And then there's, it's more crowded. You know, this instruction from this teacher, this instruction from this teacher, and they're, they're fighting it out. It's not even your own mind. It's the different instructions fighting it out. And, um, and that's not really so helpful. Um, and, and if that is what tends to happen, I think it's better to, to um, narrow in and go towards where you feel a trust and a confidence and an interest. I think that these things are chemistry. You know, the relationship between a, a teacher and a, a yogi, I think they're chemistry. And um, a lot can happen with that chemistry. You know, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, there are particular times in one's practice life where one really does need one particular person because you need the sustained attention. And um, a lot can reveal itself within that. You know, when they're... There is the sustained attention and the trust. Um, different things are possible. Yeah. So I hope that's complete enough. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's um, let's end with some um, loving kindness. Okay, so relaxing the body, relaxing the eyes, relaxing the face, relaxing the shoulders, relaxing the stomach, relaxing the mind, inwardly letting go, relaxing the mind. And to allow oneself to connect with, to touch any degree of inner warmth, inner tenderness, inner care.
Sometimes this is touched through appreciation, through gratitude. And this appreciation, this gratitude can move in so many different directions towards oneself, appreciating one's commitment, one's diligence during the different ups and downs through this past week. Appreciation, gratitude for having stayed here, sustained one's commitment. This appreciation, this gratitude extends quite naturally to those who have helped us to get here. So many people participating in helping us to get to where we are today. So much help. This appreciation, this gratitude extends itself to those here in this environment, extends itself towards the staff here coming to a meal and finding it appearing is an extraordinary thing. Not having gotten it ourselves, arriving and being nourished by someone else's efforts, we naturally feel gratitude and appreciation. All the enormous variety of actions that have happened throughout this week that have supported and and guided us and helped us to move in the direction of our aspirations. So the heart is touched with our appreciation and gratitude. As well as everyone we've sat with, everyone in the hall sitting sitting after sitting after sitting, those we've walked with, those we've passed by. Although we all come here out of different lives and different tendencies and different kinds of conditioning, at the same time, we all come here with the same intent. In our heart of hearts, we come here to learn happiness We come here to know a little bit more inner ease, inner freedom. And so appreciating this and sensing our connection, no matter how different or other than we may feel ourselves to be, right now, instead of dwelling on separation, experiencing connection. Experiencing how we receive from others, how we offer our practice to others as well. Allowing this appreciation and gratitude 
to spill over onto this world. Allowing our practice during this week to be dedicated to others. Allowing our own nourishment to continue to nourish ourselves and to quite naturally, organically nourish others as well. To nourish all beings, those whom we like and love and have affection for, those that we have trouble with, those that we don't know, all the very many struggling beings that we don't know, extending loving-kindness to all areas of the world, to all beings that are sick and suffering right now, to all beings who are happy right now, extending our loving-kindness evenly, without picking and choosing, without bias and prejudice, without separation, without self-agendas, experiencing the vastness of being that is possible in the here and now. May all beings have ease of mind May all beings have deep comfort of heart. May all beings rest within love, within compassion. May all beings be free.